folks. Greetings and salutations. Hope everybody had a good holiday. Will, I trust you had a good break? I did, yeah. Thanks very much. Of course. Happy to be steering the ship on another edition of the Digital Guardian podcast. Soon to be renamed, hopefully, in due time. <laughs> We're uh, still working through some, some workshopping some names. We'll, we'll figure that out eventually here. Joined today by Will, as always, and Ron Gula, co-founder of Tenable Network Security, now president of Gula Tech Ventures, long storied history in the InfoSec space, network penetration tester for the NSA, went to develop an extensive you know, network of honeypots, develop security policies, BBDN, so <laughs> long and thorough background here, 20 years or so in the space. Hey, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, am I paying for the intro? <laughs> That's an awesome intro. I mean, I, I held back a little bit. Will, I think you could go off, you know, as well. <laughs> it's only because I've been doing this since I was, you know, close to being in my teens. So I've been aware of Ron for more than probably about close to, yeah, probably two decades or more. Yeah, obviously, yeah, as you mentioned, Chris, Ron's an alumni of the NSA, was with BBN for a, quite a long period of time where he developed an extensive network of honeypot technology utilized in tracking down bad guys was the CTO of Network Security Wizards. Uh, for those of you out there who still who remember the old Network Security Wizards, I do. I think I was at INS back in those days when uh, when uh, when I became aware of those guys. And then uh, later on, founded what it was probably considered to be one of the most ingenuity-driven and pioneering technologies for network forensics and monitoring. That was the Dragon Intrusion Detection System platform, which I think in 2001, Gartner called the, the leading product in that space. Later, Ron, as you mentioned, went on to co-found Tenable, which is obviously a formidable organization today in the security space. And yeah, he's, he's in the adventure space now. So that's really great. Welcome, Ron. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for the opportunity. Pleasure to be with you, Will and Chris. So, Ron, before we get started, again, yeah, thanks very much. Hope your holidays were good as well. This is our this is kind of our uh, our, our first episode of the new year. We wanted to kind of touch on some of the topics we're gonna, we're going to go over for our audience today. Uh, with your extensive background, your pedigree in the space, not only as a an investor, an entrepreneur, and an executive, but also as an operator, I think this is going to be an exciting, an exciting episode. So we're going to touch on a multitude of different points within, within and related to cybersecurity as a discipline. We're going to talk uh, and get your thoughts on breaches. We're going to get some ideas from your perspective with regard to how defenders are doing in 2018 versus where they were maybe 10 years ago, and maybe even 10 years prior to that, right? If we can go back that far. I think you can, and I can. <laughs> I don't know, Chris. Uh, <laughs> and then we're going to touch on some of the more, what we like to refer to on, on this podcast as being the soft side of security as a discipline. So things having to do with awareness and education. In particular, this time around, we're going to hit on the, the, the perceived or the oftentimes discussed failure mentality in the industry. And then we're going to maybe touch on some current events and wrap it up. Sound good? Sounds exciting. Excellent. All right. For the audience at home, you know, buckle in, uh, lean back, grab a hot beverage of your choice, and uh, let's begin. So, Ron, obviously with your background, multiple decades in the space, beginning with the U.S. government, how did you get into technology? What led you to, to your path that eventually saw you working with the NSA as a penetration tester? So, my father worked at IBM. He fixed the large you know, CPU machines. I always had computers early on. I had an Atari 400 and a uh, IBM PC Junior with the infrared keyboard. And, you know, I, back then there was no internet, you know, you had dial up modems and I really got involved with just, you know, building computers and, and doing that. When I went to college, you know, the internet existed. We were using Gopher and, you know, I was exposed to Unix and that was kind of uh, an, an interesting thing. 
but it was really my my passion was always for flying airplanes. And I was, you know, a geek second. And it turns out I went into the Air Force. I was into flight school and I didn't have a good time with, uh, with G-forces. And uh, so I got back into computers and was exposed to all sorts of uh, very, very high-tech things. It was the mid-90s. I, want, I, was, I was a big X-Files fan, a big, big UFO fan. So I said, I want to go work where the UFOs are. I was completely wrong on that, but I um, you know, ended up at the NSA right when they were starting. Uh, they, nobody used words like cyber back then, but I was within a group in there that did basically penetration testing, what we know today. And that really set me up to you know, learn how to do offense, defense, talk about all the different things that we're going to talk about today. I was learning that in the mid-90s from people who basically invented it. And I had a pretty successful career at it. And I've been trying to pass it on the same way I kind of learned from people back then. That's excellent. It's very, it's very nice to hear that, uh, number one, you started out with the, uh, the idea and the desire to be a, to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> and that led you back into the technology arena, which was kind of like your first and perhaps maybe even your, your truest home, right? So that's great. You know, I, I was also in the mid-90s, kind of where I came up professionally, I would say, in terms of acumen and training in the, in the uh, Marine Corps and the intelligence community and data communications and security areas. So uh, have some empathy there and some similar ground trodden. So, uh, Rainbow books were bit, were popular. I mean, I remember having those and kind of reading those uh, almost as though they were uh, comic books for a while. <laughs> so really cool. All right. So that takes us through NSA. And what did, what, what did you think, you know, from your experience in the NSA and, and working on penetration testing so early on, taking on offensive and defensive responsibilities, which we now kind of colloquially refer to as blue teaming and red teaming, and looking at, you know, remediatory actions, you know, in a post-mortem kind of capacity. What were the most important things you learned from that experience, Ron? When, when I was working there, our customers, you know, a lot of people in that, that area, they all had clearances. So there was sort of this default view like, hey, I can share passwords with Joe because Joe's got a top secret clearance. And, you know, people weren't worried about and somebody like an Edward Snowden back in the, you know, back then we had, uh, there was a couple high profile folks, Pollard, you know, that, and that, but people weren't really tying that to like network security. So when I got out, I thought this was a government thing, a DOD thing, an intelligence community thing. But I found this attitude everywhere I went, whether it was banking, whether it was universities, hey, we're all on the same network. We're all in the same company. I can be lax with my computer security because we're all we're all friends. So that was the biggest thing I learned that you know we we have this such a trust as as humans that we just overlook tons and tons of risk all the time. And people, you know, I'm not the first person to say humans are really really bad at measuring risk. Probably a safe thing to yeah, say. Yeah, that's actually yeah. a really insight, insightful perspective, Chris. What were you going to say? Nothing. I was going to say, yeah, human humans have proved to be the weakest link more often than not. I was going to say. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that that kind of came up today on, online. I think one of the co-founders of Rapid Seven was actually talking about almost lamenting the the recent release. You probably saw this round of the Autosploit tool, which is like the the autom- automated exploitation platform uh, that's been released. I think it was written in Python, released a few days ago. That effectively speaking allows for autom- automated exploitation of vulnerable systems identified through Shodan. Similar kind of thing, right? You know, we were talking about that on this particular thread, and, and I and I pointed out, I said, hey, you know, the tool isn't really the problem what you're really lamenting and kind of struggling with here is, is the human factor and the fact that humans can't always be trusted to make the right decision based in morality or ethics. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, a, that's a really insightful perspective, I think. So, you know, you fast forward from NSA and all those lessons you learned when you went, when you segued out of government into the commercial space, 
And uh, that led, obviously, to doing the work with BBN and then subsequently then uh, thereafter becoming the CTO with the Network Security Wizards. Tell us about that a little bit. So at at BBN, I got to work with a lot of various organizations who were paying BBN to develop technologies very, very quickly. IR&D was the acronym that people used, but basically I got really good at writing proposals, building code and demonstrating code that really wasn't productizable, but it was consumable by various uh, government agencies. This got me really into thinking about, you know, how do you write write uh, products to for for commercialization? I also had a, a chance to work with my college roommate Marty Resch. Marty Marty went on to do Sourcefire, uh, but we got to work a good bit on on honeypots at BBN at that time. And then when BBN got acquired by the phone companies, you know, got acquired by by GTE, you know, I got to work uh, inside there, and I went quickly from working in on big government stuff to big phone company stuff, and got really exposed to you know, the attitudes and, you know, business models of, you know, large telcos. That's interesting. Yeah. Ron, did you notice any parallels between, you know, I guess at that time that was, so that would have been probably post 96 then, right? Or maybe right around 96? Mid mid to late, mid to late nineties. You know, it, it was, it was a good transition and, you know, there's a lot of public speakers where they always talk about transitions and, and I always try to think about it. Like if somebody's leaving the military and going somewhere else, what's a good place for them to go? Are they going from big company to little company? I, I've been really lucky to have really, really good transitions. You know, leaving the NSA, leaving the military, yet going to work for a, a you know a government services contractor that also had another foot in a lot of commercials. That was a, that was a good transition for me. Yeah, that that sounds like it was yeah, absolutely. That kind of takes us into you know obviously the point in time where you're starting to consider some broader spectrum, larger scale network challenges from a security perspective. What led to your development of the, of the Dragon platform, Ron? So after BBN, I worked briefly at a company called U.S. Internetworking, which was really cloud 1.0. It was an application services provider where, you know, frankly, we were going to host your data, your applications better than you could, more secure, lower cost, that that sort of thing. And I, I worked with a product called ISS back then, ISS Real Secure. And that was the cutting edge intrusion detection system. But, you know, every product's got false positives. Every product's got performance issues. And this particular one didn't run on Linux. So I said, wow, I, I think I could do, you know, a solution that was was kind of open. It wasn't necessarily open source, but the signatures were open that ran on Linux that was fast and fast in the late 90s was, you know, keeping up with 30, 50 megabits, megabits of traffic. And, and that's what led to Dragon. You know, we built that. My wife and I worked on that. I, I got to work with, you know, five or six really, really talented people who've, gone on to work at a lot of interesting companies everywhere from, you know, Silence to McAfee to, yeah, I don't want to name, name specific names, but there's a lot of startups out there that I'm, I'm still really close to because of that. That's awesome. I really appreciate, you know, have, having that opportunity. That's great. I forgot that Cindy, your wife, for, for those at home, Cindy Gula is Ron's wife, obviously, and uh, has been instrumental in, in many of the endeavors that he's had over the years. So that's awesome that you guys were able to work on that together. And Dragon, of course, Dragon was acquired by Enterasis, wasn't it? It was acquired by Enterasis, and it lives on today as an application fingerprinting technology inside some of their, actually at Extreme, believe it or not, uh, which eventually acquired Enterasis. Ah, oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's great. The multiple generations. It's pretty cool to, to, to think about the fact that something you worked on you know, and pioneered all those years ago is still living on and, and providing value right? All, you know, uh, in, in a new era. That's awesome. And then, of course, Tenable. So, Ron, can you tell us a little bit about what led to you, what led to you kind of conceptualizing Tenable 
partnering with with the core team there and and bringing that to the uh, the commercial space. Yeah. So when we sold Dragon, so Nevis Security Wizards to Enteris, has worked there for for a couple of years and really got exposed to large scale companies. You know, two tier channel distribution, international support teams, all sorts of of, of stuff. So let's go start another company and. You know, we wanted to do something completely different than intrusion detection. And at the time, in the, the early 2000s, you had basically a vulnerability scanner for every platform. You had one for SAP, you had one for a database, you had one for Windows, you had one for Linux. Some did exploitation, some were more compliance. And the original, like the very, very early inklings of, of Tenable was sort of like a sim for these vulnerability scanner platforms where you'd bring all these different things together and you'd be able to track things. Again, back in that day, compliance was not a big deal. Their PCI hadn't happened yet. You know, there were government requirements, but it wasn't, it wasn't as big of a deal. It's more about let's start leveraging some technology, bring all this together. What we we did though is we 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 started talking with Renaud Darrison, the, the the founder of the Nessus open source project. And we really hit it off. So my co-founder, Jack Hufford, Renaud Darrison, we, we basically got, got our act together and we, we really started producing technology that helped people do vulnerability management at scale. And it was more about adding value to Nessus and then adding value to like what an enterprise would need, you know, and keep investing in all that technology. So, you know, from where Tenable is today, and, and you look back at that beginning, we never really strayed from that. We, kept adding more and more value into what we could audit. And just along the way, sort of the market caught up with, with our vision, right? You had compliance, you had the things like the NIST cybersecurity framework, you had things like the progression to the cloud. So it was a, it was a great ride, great, great, great ride. And they're still riding, doing quite well today. They just came out with numbers. And so they did almost a quarter billion dollars in revenue last year. You were at Tenable for a while, right? Like a good 15... 15- yeah, so I clocked uh, 15 years as CEO, and then the last year I, ca- I transitioned to chair the board. Jack and Renault were co-CEOs. You know, I was really happy to be able to recruit Meet Uran, who, going back to Dragon, you know, we had quite the partnership there. It was when I was doing uh, Dragon, he was running Riptech, and you know, we didn't do managed services out of uh, Dragon, so that was a great partnership. So I was really happy to let him meet, you know, sort of take over at and be CEO at Tenable. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, he's a great guy. So you see, so you obviously knew the Belchers and, and Amit and his brothers as well for a long period of time. That's great. Great people. Excellent. So with your with the culmination of your experience and moving into the venture space, you know, and obviously kind of being able to have a multi-decade <laughs> like myself purview, let, let's start talking about your thoughts on the cybersecurity space today. And I, I use that term only because cyber, that is only because it's kind of, it's, it's so ingrained in the lingua franca, right, of the industry. Uh, for us old hats, right, it's, it was always information security and even information warfare if we go back for far <laughs> in our pedigree, right? But, you know, I'm, I'm really curious, as are, the, as are uh, Chris and uh, the other members of our team, about what your thoughts are with regard to the space today. Do you think we're experiencing a resurgence or a renaissance of some of the ideas that had been prevalent in the past, uh, bringing back really a heavier emphasis on detection and then prevention, followed by remediation? Or are we exp- are we finding ourselves, in your opinion, in, in more of an evolutionary and explosive growth period uh, in terms of innov- innovation and technological advancement? Well, there, there's definitely more people aware of cybersecurity now than there was 20 years ago. There's definitely more. Are we better off? Are we doing a resurgence? That's a much harder question to, to, to answer. 
And you know, the way I talk about it is this. I spend a lot of time with, with CIOs and CSOs. And when you talk to them, they're living five years, six years in the future. They're building what they think is a very resilient, very defendable, very sustainable type of type of infrastructure. Maybe there's cloud, maybe it's containers, maybe it's a you know user authentication access. There's all these different things we're gonna we're gonna get into. But for every one of those, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of smaller companies who are basically having to deal with nation-state class malware that's trying to advertise cheap Viagra. So it's really, really kind of hard to say that we're in some sort of, you know, evolutionary phase or something because it touches every one of us. And then what doesn't make it, you know, any easier is the media. You know, every every day in the previous administration, there, there was some sort of, of hacking scandal of who got hacked and who got owned. And then in the, the current administration, we're, we're just going back and forth with interesting ideas like nationalizing the, the, you know, the cell phone network or, you know, mandatory encryption backdoors, you know, into, into phones. So it's front and center. And as a privacy person, as a cyber person, it's kind of hard to say that that's progress. It, it, we live in interesting times. Yeah, you made some really great points, especially with respect to comparison and contrast of um, current national administration's points of view on cybersecurity and, and the arena we're a part of. Uh, Ron, in your in your perspective, you know, do you think that you're, especially when you take a look from an investor's perspective, do you see anything that's encouraging to you in terms of evolution and, and approaching the problem set more intelligently and perhaps even in a, in a more crisp and expeditious fashion today? Without getting caught into the hype and talking about, you know, some of the things that are kind of referred to as like security, you know, buzzword bingo type terms like AI and ML. Do you see things that really excite you and that, that give you a lot of hope for the future for those CISOs who are trying to build those environments with a five or an eight year vision out? Or, or do you think we're kind of chasing our tails a little bit and getting too wrapped up in some of the hype cycle words? So there, there's definitely some hype around, you know, certain terms, AI, Bitcoin, uh, blockchain, you know, machine learning. And I'm not against or for, you know, any one of those technologies they're, they're, you know, we might as well go back 20 years and, or 15 years or whatever and talk about, you know, SSL and, you know, PKI and, 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 and it's just, you know, big data. I mean, the deep packet inspection, right? These are just concepts that are really, really useful to talk to people who don't do cyber every day. But people who practice it, they kind of realize that these are, these are just kind of names. That's how you apply them. But as an investor, you know, I, I, I want to invest and not lose money. I'd like to, you know, hopefully, you know, not only grow the experience and, you know, the, the, the experience of the number of CEOs out there who can, who can do cyber companies, but also get a return on our investment as, you know, as well. So I'm excited in every company that, you know, that we're involved in and what we're, we're, we're working on. When it comes to CIOs and CSOs, though, there's still some really big problems in cyber that we have not solved. There is no way independently for a board to come to their CIO and CSO and get a really nice independent and automated way to measure how well they're doing or, or how well the plan is, is going to be. It's impossible to do. There's too many technology roadmaps. There's too many different variables to measure. And you know, when somebody tells me they're designing a secure system and be more secure than today, these are like, it's like, it's like religion. You know, I'm going to be a better Catholic a, a year from now if I do these things. It's a very, very subjective thing. So from that point of view, I, I'm actually very concerned that we're making some bets about technology in the future that might not be, be good bets. I'll give you a good example. If we had a Windows desktop, we can argue if Windows is more secure or less secure than some other operating system. But Let's assume we had to compare a Windows desktop to like a Google Chromebook 
or perhaps a highly secured Windows terminal, you know, that's run that's run from the cloud. If you start saying, hey, we're going to reduce complexity, and you know, that's somehow our measurement of security, which is a lot of these what these CIOs and CSOs are working on, that's good. But if you reduce complexity and all of a sudden you're all into a platform like Amazon, and now along comes a problem such as Meltdown or Spectre, where your CPU costs and Amazon go through the roof, that might, you know, not be the best decision. So how can somebody say four years from now or five years from now, we're going to be more secure because of these things. It's a really, really tough problem. Nobody, Nobody's really working on that yet. Yeah, those are very good points. I would tend to agree with you with regard to uh, some of the promises that are being made by these technologies when they really haven't been proven out. I find the blockchain thing fascinating only because I think if you were to, to kind of go back, maybe maybe even as in as short of a period of time as 12 months ago, most people would never have understood or even had an inclination as to what blockchain was. And that includes many technologists. So kind of touching on one of the things you were, you, were, you, you brought up, Ron, with regards to the gaps and the challenges that uh, the CIOs and the CISOs are facing, whether they're in SMBs or in large enterprises, where do you see those gaps being most pronounced between defenders and adversaries or threat actors today? Do you see any areas where, where the defenders are, are really rising to the occasion and narrowing those gaps? And conversely, do you see any, do you see areas that are really deeply concerning to you wherein uh, threat actors or adversaries are really gaining ground and in fact, leveraging technologies, some of which we just talked a moment ago about like AI and ML, for example, and leveraging those against defenders with adversarial intent in mind? What do you think about those things? Yeah. So there's some organizations where, you know, the definition of security is defined by your detection stack. So if you have endpoint, if you have network monitoring, if you have a a SIM, a a network security monitor, you have something that looks for anomalies, and you have a SOC and you have, geez, antivirus, we go on and on, right? And if all those are good and, you know, you don't get any alerts, somehow you're secure. Or, you know, if you get a thousand false positive alerts and you have to manage it and you manage the alerts down and you're, you're good and somehow that's, that's secure. So those who define security based on the output of their detection things, that's, that's kind of tough. That's kind of tough because we've seen time and time again that, you know, an adversary is going to know how to bypass that or, you know, fly below the radar. And, and that's, that's an issue. On the other hand, if your version of security is being compliant, then, then that's an issue too. I've, I've actually had plenty of tenable customers and, and other vulnerability management company customers. Hey, all of our scans are done and we're, we're within our patch window. So we're, we're compliant. Everything's configurized and, and that's good. And that's, you know, the end of their journey because that was a hard journey for them to, to go down. So that, that was kind of rough. You start looking at that, and then then along comes all these other kind of interesting technologies, like you know things like browser isolation or you know virtual desktops, where you don't need a VPN, you don't even need you know a lot of interesting thing to get access to your data, and the data never leaves the data center. So how do you take a mo- those kind of new concepts, which are really old concepts, you know, going back to the mainframe, and juxtapose them with this detection kind of, kind of apparatus that's out there? So a lot of times, if you really want to understand what's going on in these organizations from a CIO or CSO and, and trying to model that out, you've got to model so many human things into that, that there's really no way to, 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 to figure out if they're more secure or less secure than, than, than another organization. So that's, I, I kind of go back to what I said earlier, but, but that's my big concern right now. We, we still don't know how good we are, or how bad we are. Yeah, those are good points. I think especially in the era that we're in where the concept of the, of the breach is so prevalent and, and I would almost say predominant, you know, within the minds and of not only industry 
folks, but also the, the every the everyman, right? I mean, uh, everyone today is concerned about being breached or having their data, personal identifying data, or or just as, you know, or, or other data being caught up in someone's breach, right? So that's at the forefront of a lot of people's concerns. So, Ron, and with from that perspective, and I guess this is a good segue into the the discussion around breaches. What lessons do you think? You know, if you look back over your, the course of your career, going back to NSA and BBN. And then, of course, with the network security wizards and then ultimately with Tenable, what lessons do you think business leaders, executives and stakeholders, whether they're in commercial enterprise endeavors or whether they're not-for-profits or government entities, what do you think that they need to be focusing on first and foremost? And where do you think that they can afford to place, I wouldn't say no emphasis, but perhaps lesser emphasis in terms of priority when it comes to things that matter as it relates to their, their budgets and where they're going to make place their bets with regard to spend and personnel and things of that nature and defending their environments. Yeah. So no matter where you're at, if you're in an organization, you have to realize if your mandate is to do security monitoring or security engineering. And a lot of times people confuse both of those, those roles. So maybe you're a chief security officer, you're a director of IT security, and, and you're not supported, right? You have a board or a CEO or a management team who doesn't really know what, what, what level of investment it takes, or they don't know what bad decisions they've made, right? Adding the pen tester, or adding the incident response person doesn't magically you know, fix, fix those things. And because we have a lack of resources out there, we, we, there's a lot of people in this situation where they, are, they don't have enough resources to, to, to find all the attacks or, or even to plug them. And they're never going to get out of that until they move towards more of security engineering. And then it's pick whatever framework you want, right? In a cybersecurity framework, you know, any type of, of compliance regime, you know, can get you to, to a more secure place. But if you're doing security engineering and you're doing it against a business process, chances are you're going to be more of an enabler than uh, someone who's just saying, hey, you know, we really need to add more you know, security technology to the stack and, and more types of monitoring. So I think the biggest problem out there is that people don't know when they should be doing more or less of the other one because they kind of have this false false sense of security that they're either over-securely engineering or they're over-detecting, you know, what bad things are out there. Yeah, those are interesting points. Those are interesting points. I'm, I'm curious, Ron, too, you know, from your perspective, whether or not you you think that, and I would say perhaps maybe even in in the last... 10 years, especially with the advent of things like uh, Veris and the, DB, the DBIR from the Verisign, or the, excuse me, the Verizon guys. Where, do you think that people are practicing more uh, now as opposed to when that initiative first began, a, a holistic form of, of information security, or is it still predominantly blocking and tackling from your perspective? When I look at those reports, I look at the striation amongst the industry verticals and things of that nature. It seems to me as though, I, especially when you walk the floors of a lot of the trade conferences, it seems like there's a lot of point, point of presence type of technology, uh, which is really gauged on uh, addressing a gap in a singular fashion, as opposed to approaching, taking a, a holistic approach across the expanse of an enterprise. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we're moving more towards a holistic view or are we still kind of blocking and tackling? I think that we still don't know. I'll give you a couple examples. Everybody talks about metrics, right? What key PIs can I, you know, key process indicators, whatever, can I, can I measure to figure out if I'm doing something? And, you know, people talk about infection rates, detection rates, patch rates, you know, time to time to exploit rates and, and, and things. Those are all fairly internal facing there are very few public at large things that you can look at. Like even Shodan, Shodan is a daily scan, right? There's no trending on, on Shodan. You know, there's no, you know, actuary table, so to speak, from like an insurance industry that has common terminology for like 
you know, cyber, the equivalent of cyber for things like floods and, and, and fires. So, for example, we don't know, Microsoft knows this, Symantec knows this, but, but as a public, we don't know this. You know, what is the real patch rate for home computers? What is the real patch rate for corporate America? You know, what is the real patch rate for things like the CDM program, you know, CyberScope, you know, at, in the government? A lot of that information is fairly sensitive, and it's not something that, that is publicly known. And even if we did disclose it, I'm not so sure we would change any, any behaviors that are, you know, that are out there. Most organizations, when you talk to them about defending the endpoint, defending the cloud presence, defending the data center, you, you get into these other sort of, you know, different theory type of discussions that are, that are out there. Not like I answered your point to, to specifically, but, but that's kind of my biggest concern. There's, there's still a lot of ways to measure things that we're not, we're not doing as a, as a nation, as a society, as, as, as people. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Ron. You know, I, I think when I look at things, you know, and especially coming out of DOD years ago and then working in consultancies first before I got into the product company space, you know, a lot of the things that concern me are the fact that, and it was true even 10, 15, 20 years ago, but I think it's even, it's still true today, which is bothersome that assessments are undertaken, audits are undertaken, whether they're representative sampling or whether they're exhaustive security assessments that involve full scope non just you know zero knowledge type of penetration including you know social engineering which we used to do way before that was like a, a fad <laughs> and popularized you know to try to provide the most value to the enterprises it seems like there's still a disconnect when organizations engage with firms to perform that type of service and they're delivered very succinct reports uh, i can remember doing a lot of those years and years ago with uh with nessus and of course iss's tool and some other things and, you know, uh, they get those reports, they, the vulnerabilities are, are pointed out to them, the paths to exploitation are pointed out to them, especially when part of the, uh, the, scope of, the scope of work might involve actually taking trophies. All those things are delivered to the stakeholders. And then, you know, you still, you still hear about breaches occurring and compromises occurring. What, in your perspective, and I imagine you have a lot of war stories through both net, the network wizards, network security wizards, and the tenable experience. What do you think is leading to that? Is, is it just been a, a lackluster, maybe lackluster is not the right the right term, but has it just been a, a deficiency in terms of the of comprehension with regards to the severity and the scope and the value of having a secure ecosystem in the internet era, or is or is it politicism, or what? What do you think has been really the the driving force that sees us where we're at today? When you start to consider the fact that things like security assessments are not new, and even a lot of the the capabilities and the practices to, that are today highly touted uh, were, were going on. But, and being performed by folks like yourself and myself and other people, Aaron Turner and these guys for years and years and years at SCOTUS. <laughs> you know, what do you think? Uh, why do you think we're still seeing some of these deficiencies? A lot of it is coming down to so what? So, you know, a lot of, a lot of times you'll see, you hear people say things like, well, if you're a security person, you want to make a difference, you have to align to your, your business processes and, and speak the language of your business. And you know what? That's exactly what Equifax was doing. That's exactly what OPM was doing. That's exactly what you know. Whoever the next big breach is, the, the board. It's not a surprise to these companies that that cyber is is an issue. But it's sort of like saying, okay, you know, there's a lot of evidence that I don't know smoking causes cancer, right? Yet we still sell a lot of cigarettes, right? There's a lot of evidence that being connected to the internet, you know, results in hacking. But we're still connected to the to the internet, so. Just because the problem's been identified, it's not, there's no clear idea of what we should do next, right? Because I might be, my job might be defending nuclear missile launch codes, and, and your job might be just keeping the, the passenger manifest from a cruise, you know, boat cruise, you know, secure on the internet. So there's a lot of different, so many different businesses out there. It's hard to align with that out there. 
And I think a really, really big fail that a lot of people who are involved in cybersecurity, you, you know, get is they just don't know how to communicate what could happen because what could happen is so bad that it can be ignored. A lot of people look at Equifax and say, well, that happened to them. It's not going to happen to us, right? A lot of people could say that what we're doing is part of some, you know, you know, the, the bad guys out there. We always, we always do a good job about, about, about talking about them, but we don't talk about how it affects uh, us internally. And, and I guess the best story I had here is, you know, when I was in flight school, I was exposed to a lot of, a lot of pilots. And, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. But when, when I was at the NSA and I was actually doing assessments, I got to deliver reports to people who were in the military and very senior leadership. And I actually could speak somewhat of the same, the same language. So there is some truth to that, that if you're conveying highly technical and theoretical stuff that could be really practical you know, knowing a bit more about your business does, you know, does help, but that's, we, we really, really do fall down there. That's an, that's an interesting perspective. And I think it's, I think it's noteworthy, right? Is tra- being able to translate these things so that it is meaningful to people who are not necessarily security oriented or pro- professionals, especially if they're not working for a cybersecurity product or services organization, you know, if their business is, you know, getting trains to you know, logistics, you know, places on time, things on time, right. That's, that's, it's important to be able to, to kind of uh, be able to establish that middle ground. So, you know, having said that, Ron, with 2018, you know, we're just at the beginning of the year. If you had to tell a room full of CISOs and decision makers what they should be focusing on, maybe the three top things they should be looking to do uh, in order to provide a, a an overall best, better risk posture and, and a reduction in attack surface for their uh, their enterprise and for their assets, whether they're t- systems or machines or, or even personnel, what, where would you, what would you stress and why would you stress those three things? So if I was in a room full of CISOs and I was sort of giving them, you know, the marching orders, I, I would start. I would start a couple different places. So, so one, whatever security stack they have, they should try to reduce the number of vendors that they're that they're working with, and they need to realize a couple different different things. You know, one, the endpoints are getting more and more sophisticated with the type of monitoring that they can do. Do they need five or six different endpoint products, you know, on on that endpoint? And I'm talking everything from authentication to EDR to logging to, to to antivirus to vulnerability auditing, even right. You know, how much of those endpoints can you can you pull together? It's the same thing for event monitoring, right? You might have a sim, you might have a log aggregation tool, you might have a cloud monitoring tool. That is all going to get collapsed. So if you have four or five vendors, you know, one for the cloud, one for the network, one for the logs. You, you should probably think about collapsing that. And then when you do these types of collapsings, it's going to be a lot easier to answer your compliance strategy and, and start being able to say, look, if I have this type of monitoring, can I demonstrate one, detection of breaches, but two, can I start demonstrating de- you know, compliance? And you know, real-time compliance is something that a lot of people talk about, but it's really, really hard to to achieve, so that's that's one thing, right? So the, on the whole security monitoring and detection side, try to you know don't don't forget the basics of detecting, but start becoming an asset for your organization to prove that things are 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 working the way they're supposed to work. Now, having said that, you know what kind of business are you? Are you a traditional IT company where you have Windows desktops and the enterprise and Active Directory? And you know, when you start talking about where where are you going to be ten years from now, fifteen from now, even five years from now? And you're faced with stuff like GDPR, you're faced with things like, you know, do you have too many people who have access to your data? Having an organization where you've got, you know, a lot of centralizing to do, maybe you have different disparate applications, 
maybe you're, maybe you're in healthcare and you have different databases per state. You know, there, there's so many reasons why you have complexity. But basically, most organizations are moving towards some sort of simplicity, some sort of unification, some sort of, of, of common place to put data. In the SMB, it might be, look, if I'm running an app, I can probably get that app in the cloud and it's probably going to be more secure and easier to audit than, uh, than what I can do on my own. In the big organizations, you're, you're literally you're talking about thousands, you know, tens of thousands of apps that you can collapse to, you know, common apps, the brands that we know, Salesforce, NetSuite, uh, Workday, you know, Jobvite, that, 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 that kind of stuff. And then if you're doing that, how do you do the first thing I talked about, the monitoring and assessment of that? Should that be built in? And that's what I'd be telling these, these folks, you know, and then at, at the same time, you've got to then also say at the same time you're doing that you still have to grow your team because it's still a very competitive place. Uh, almost every CISO I know, they grow a team and they, they get a person who's good and they get, boom, they're a C- CSO someplace else. So they've got to also look inward at uh, building their team, recruiting their team. They need to show up at things like hackathons and, and, and capture the flag events so they can identify you know, the next good system admin or you know, security person on their stuff. So those are the big three things. Make sure their monitoring stack is simplified and unified. You know, make sure you're going through the to the future with a very unified and centralized approach. And then don't forget, you got to build your team and keep keep looking out for them. Yeah, those are really great points. And I think that um, I especially, I mean, I like all of them, but I, and I especially appreciate uh, the last one because I think oftentimes, you know, identifying talent and being able to attract that talent and retain that talent while still cultivating, while making sure that you can cultivate that talent and invest in any of that talent in order to perpetuate tradecraft, which isn't something we talk a lot about, but I think it's really important. It, it, that's extremely important, right? You know, to providing a, a, a strong a strong organizational capability in terms of operational security. That's a great point. You know, and I think oftentimes, you know, too, Ron, one of the things that we hear about when we go to conferences and we're, whether we're speaking or we're participating as vendors is, is oftentimes what's, what's going wrong, right? We, you know, we hear people come up and say, oh, you know, hey, you know, this is, you know, you pick your breach, right? Whether it's Equifax or whether it's, you know, OPM, which was near and dear to my heart you know, a few years back or, or whomever, right? You know, it's all this failure happening. And, and then, you know, uh, you hear people talking about oftentimes industry pundits giving presentations about this thing that, that they've kind of referred to as the failure mentality, and, and that's driven by fatigue or that's driven by what seem to be insurmountable problems in the space. What are your thoughts on that? It's, it's an area that really bothers me because I've spent most of my career like yourself in public service and then also in services organizations on the commercial side and then product organizations trying to solve these problems. So when I hear that fail mentality that we're failing, it really bothers me. What do you think about that? Do you think it's a real thing or do you think that that's a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy? You know, I, I hear the failure mentality mentioned uh, a, a couple times, but it, it also it, it comes from different groups. Like, let's say you walk into a, a security operations center and you just see the SOC and they are overworked. So the question is, why are they overworked, right? Did, are they tuning their sensors too, too wrong? Is the product not good? Is, is there a contractor involved and they're just not staffing the, you know, the number, number of people? So you, you can get overworked. You know, some people get overworked because they're just not cut out for cyber. There's so many things you've got to learn to 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 be you know sort of an expert in cyber. You you can get burned out a little bit, and it, it is a it is a contact sport. I, I have seen people you know get uh, get kind of burnt out in that, and then you kind of get in this the, the, this mode. And then the other thing that comes with the failure mentality is if you actually do have a CISO or a CIO who knows that the investment is not there. You know, there are hackers on the network. There are you know, incidents every week, 
you know, how long do you want to be, you know, in that business? And, and that's sometimes, you know, if you've got a bad attitude there, that can be infectious of your, you know, of your, of your team. Now, do I believe that, you know, every network is hackable? I mean, of, of course, but the, the, the realism is if you're designing a network with, with good security principles from the ground up, you should have a healthy respect that, that you might have missed something. But that failure mentality is because you know that I could, we, I could put one line of code up and say, this is secure. And you know, within like five minutes, someone's going to tweet that I missed this or missed that. That's just the nature of the complexity of what we're, what we're dealing with. So I like to tell people, you know, don't lose hope. We're employed. We're, we're doing good. Try to focus on simplifying what we're doing so, you know, so we can scale. That's, those are great points. You touched on something that was really, I think, important to me. I, I've, I've always felt this way going, you know, way back in early on in the post-military, but also in the military parts of my career. And that's, you know, designing and architecting networks with security in mind while still ensuring that they're operationally efficient. And uh, we had Rich Barger. Do you know Rich Barger? He's one of the, one of the, the uh, co-founders of Threat Connect, and now he's over at Splunk. We had him on last year, and he talked about living off the land, right, and really kind of encouraging that mentality amongst CISOs and operational security teams to live off the land with respect to the investments that they have in technology in-house and in order to harvest as much in- information and intelligence as possible so that while you do make decisions with respect to unification and, and solidifying on a singular, let's say, vendor or maybe a small subset of vendors, you, you're in a better position to do that because you really do have a better feel for your organization and, what, and what's occurring. What are your thoughts on, on that? You know, do you think we miss that? Do you think as an industry, do you think that as vendors, sometimes we forget to encourage people to truly kind of take advantage of all of the data that we do provide our client base as opposed to just kind of the shiny things? <laughs> Yeah, so two two thoughts there. So the first thought is the first time I really heard that was from Ira Winkler. He was given a keynote at a show called the Techno Security Conference, and he talked about that in terms of the Wizard of Oz. Right, and the whole the whole punchline of the Wizard of Oz is you already have a heart, you already have a brain, you're already courageous. And he's like, you know, you already have logging, you already have the ability to audit with most of your technology that you have on your stack. And this would have been you know, mid to mid, mid to late nineties. I think I saw him talk about this. You know, the reality is a lot of times when people buy security products or deploy a security product, maybe they chose open source, they're making an emotional decision. And as much as I would like to say that most people do a bake off and, 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 and put the product to them, they don't, they don't. There's a lot of smart people out there. Nobody has the resources to put Pick your company, Microsoft, you know, Tenable, I mean, you guys, Digital Guardian. Nobody's got the resources on staff in industry to compare to the testing and R&D that you guys put into. So the fact that there's a bake-off, yes, they might, they might find some material thing. But the reality is, is there's going to be some emotional response for what security products they're, they're deploying. And that's going to shape their view of what's out there. So then you've got all these problems. You have all these different vendors who are not designed to talk to each other you've got a data problem. So now you have another product to, to come in and do that type of, of, of overlay. Perhaps it's SIM, perhaps it's orchestration, perhaps you're doing, you know, just dumping everything into a data lake without any type of way to understand, you know, what is secure? What are you looking for? And so I, I, I still think people are better off reducing the number of vendors and reducing the number of, you know, things they have to, 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 to deal with. And I think, you know, I think if you guys have talked to Sunil Yu at Bank of America, he talks about this a lot. You know, the world he sees going down the road is where all the sensing is built into your infrastructure. 
your router, your switches, your cloud router, your cloud broker, you know, it's all going to do all the logging for you. And then the analytics of what happens on that is going to really be more business driven. If you compare that today, where all your sensors, your scanners, your uh, antivirus agents, your EDRs, your, your, your authentic, those are all generating this, the signal for you. So if the signal of the future is your infrastructure, then the, the rules of the future are going to come from your, your, your business. But today, we're so jammed up in signals coming from 20 or 30 different vendors, it's kind of hard to see the noise, of what, what the signal through the noise, so to speak. Yeah, I agree with that. It actually reminds me of, uh, you probably remember this, Ron, it reminds me of what Cisco Systems tried to do, I guess it would be about 13 years ago now, when they launched the, uh, the Self-Defending Network Initiative. Remember that, that concept they had where they were saying, they're very much saying what you were, where you were just uh, implying that, hey, you know, your routers and switches should be able to talk to and communicate with your firewalls, which should be able to communicate and receive in data endpoints from, at that point in time, they had the, the old Okina agents, right? The CSA agents, right? Those things should be able to work together in concert, and you should be able to rely on those that infrastructure to be able to make smarter, more expeditious decisions. But I don't know that we ever got there. I don't think they ever did as a vendor. And I think they're trying to do that again. But I agree with that. I think that, that the infrastructure should be uh, almost as though it were an organism, you know, in, empowered to do that technologically. <laughs> and it's something we should we should almost demand of, of our of our vendors. So I think that's an interesting point. We're coming up on 50 minutes. Why don't we pause for a second and get some thoughts on some current events with respect to the complexities and, and the gross impact of Spectre and Meltdown. What are your thoughts on that? Certainly uh, coming from a penetration testing perspective and background, and then of course doing the uh, the defensive side of things on the network monitoring side, but ultimately with Tenable. What do you think about that? Do you think uh, do you think that the threat is being overly hyped or do you think that it's being discussed at an, with, with an appropriate degree of uh, severity in mind? What are your thoughts on that particular that particular happen, happening? So a lot of stuff, a lot of this has been been talked about, but the stuff that's, that resonates with me is one, it's just the length of time that this has been been out there. So as much as we've got, you know, all these universities, all these threat research teams, you know, a lot of times people people miss stuff that it looks obvious now, but it's brilliant the people that find this stuff. So any argument against vulnerability research or disclosure or anything like that, I mean, just goes right out the window. Now, having said that. This is the kind of attack I would have expected to see in the treasure trove of hacking tools that got stolen from, you know, some of the U.S., supposedly some of the U.S. intelligence agencies, right? This is a very advanced attack. It's not anything anybody was looking for. And it was kind of, you know, pretty, pretty cool to see. And the attacks against it, like I know people have talked about, you know, looking at CPU impact, looking at things like that. There's a lot of people in in industry where, hey, if the CPU spikes, I must have malware. You know, they just assume they got to wipe wipe the disk, or hey, the browser crashed, I got to wipe and start over again. So that's 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 an interesting point. The thing that I'm interested here with Meltdown and and and, and Spectre is the impact to cloud computing. You know, I I don't want to hurt anybody who's doing trying to do a good job and and do it, but I I'd, I'd be really curious to know what you know Salesforce's data center bill is at the end of the month or, you know, what, what the real story on the inside of some of these cloud providers re- really are. I know personally, I've got 25 companies, about a third or fourth of them actually do a tremendous amount of cloud computing. They've all registered tremendous, I'm talking double 50% increases in their cost of doing stuff at Amazon, doing stuff at places that use this thing. And I think that's an interesting question. You know, what if it was three times as much? You know, does the does something like this? You're talking about CPU efficiencies here. Does it question the entire model of the cloud? And of course not. We have Moore's law and, and that. But 
if there really was an, an attack where I could go from one AMI at Amazon or I could hop a VPC or I could do something like that, that that's the kind of thing that would cause this, what I call this cloud migration, you know, to really halt and maybe go the other way and, and have people start investing in their own, uh, their own data centers. So that's the thing I'm looking at here. Now, the concern I have is now that there's all this attention on firmware and, and, and chip execution and, and secure coding, are there going to be eight or nine other things? Like, like imagine, I'm already imagining people doing the patch and going through this. There's been a lot of static around that. Well, what if there's like 10 more vulnerabilities like this now that everybody's going to start doing research there? That could be a, a problem, right? I mean, we got pretty good at deploying Windows patches and browser patches over the last, you know, five, 10 years. I don't think we got really good at deploying firmware patches and, and core OS patches. So, so we'll see how that, you know, how that plays out. Those are my biggest concerns with that story, though. Yeah, you gave me a couple of things uh, to think about, you know, when you when you were talking about that, Ron. Reminded me of the Blue Pill research that came out a few years back ago with the jumping the hypervisors. Remember that research paper that was released and the, the POC for that? And I think they may have demonstrated that at Black Hat 2010 or 2012. I can't remember. But, uh, you know, at the time, people were like, you know, oh, it's theoretical and this, that and the other. And it's like, well, yeah, but... <laughs> It's kind of similar, right? You know, if there's if there's a an avenue for exploitation associated with something like that, and it can be executed, you know, remotely, that's really bad. So in a similar fashion, you know, it, you know, you give me pause to consider beyond the traditional endpoint what what the ramifications might be. You know, to your point with regards to future research on mobile devices, all right, and uh, and what that might mean for not just the enterprise computing ecosystems, but also for the average the everyday, like my mom. And her iPhone, you know, I really don't want to have to, to kind of feel a call from my mom, you know, telling me that something's happened to her iPhone <laughs> in that sense. Yeah, interesting stuff, you know, switching gears a little bit. I wanted to get your, your feel for, you know, because you talked about some of the things that were some of the exploits that may have had origins in parts of the U.S. In, intelligence community uh, that we saw last year, like with the Wanna, the WannaCry campaign. What are your thoughts on that, specifically with regards to nation state activity and looking at things nation specifically like like a DPRK, which is considered to be a hermit kingdom or a rogue nation? Do you see, and I'm really curious to get your ideas about the shadow brokers, right? And, and the, the changes that are taking place in the threat landscape with the presence of these organizations. What do you think about that for defenders, Ron? Where, where do you think people should be doubling down on, on, on their security strategies? And also from a research perspective and, and a startup perspective, what are your thoughts on, and what are the implications on those types of adversarial growth patterns for new innovators? I'm, you know, we invested in, in Flashpoint and, and Threat Connect. So I, I, I tend to see a lot of the stuff, the research that, that, uh, that those companies do. And, you know, a lot of nation state stuff comes up, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of nation state stuff that doesn't come up. Like I've been out of, I've been out of NSA. I, I haven't had a clearance for, boy, it's, I think it's most of my tenable career. So for almost 15, 20 years. But having said that, you know, I, I still talk to a lot of folks from, from both sides of the, uh, of the intelligence community and whatnot. You know, I think that when people think about defending their network from a nation state group, they, they don't have a chance. And even though we see tools like WannaCry, they don't understand that, you know, a nation state is going to tap their phones. It's going to subvert some of their key people. It's going to intercept their mail. I'm talking about their physical mail. They're going to do, you know, satellite signals intercept. I mean, it's a full spectrum if you're targeted by, by a nation state. So the question is, is how do you defend against that? And the short answer is you don't. You pray that you're good enough to keep the, the regular hackers out and that you hope the FBI doesn't show up one day and says, by the way, you know, the blah, 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 
intelligence agency is coming, you know, coming after you and stealing X, Y, and Z. So, you know, I tell people they got it, but they still have to then defend themselves from stuff like, like the water cry. So you're going to have these, we have the social problem of if you have tools that are developed by the intelligence community and they, they lose them and it impacts the planet, you know, what's the ramifications for that? And as a society, I think we're still in shock, right? You, you had OPM that lost all the top secret clearances. You had a couple intelligence agencies, perhaps that lost some tools that, you know, actually, you know, really hurt the economy in some cases, especially in, 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 in Europe. And as a planet, you know, we, we haven't really sort of gotten around how, how we feel about stuff like that. What is, you know, what Equifax, same thing, you know, they, they lose something, everybody's credit kind of, kind of gets stolen. So I think that's where this conversation's going. This is going to be a political question in the next election. This is going to be something that we're going to grapple with going, going forward. But yes, very tough, tough question. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I just recently, actually as recent as this morning, saw an article specifically on, on the DPRK with regard to how they recruit and train intelligence, cyber threat intelligence and, and uh, offensive personnel within their ecosystem. There was a report that appeared in express.co.uk. Pretty interesting. I'll send you the link later on if you like it. Pretty interesting in that the research that was conducted and that was brought to bear was by a, a former NSA expert on uh, who focused on East Asia. It was really interesting to see how in a, in an unclassified work was being discussed with regards to recruitment within that that particular nation, which is considered to be kind of a kludgy, you know, hermit kingdom. But the the thing that I found most interesting, and to your point, right, with regards to dealing with nation states and versus proxies versus criminal ecosystems, is that in this case they sh- they very quickly once they identify young children, middle school age, with aptitude in math and science and technology, they quickly matriculate them into programs within their own university ecosystem and then ship them off to to locales within northeastern China. So it's your point. I think it, it, and I found this really kind of interesting when the whole WannaCry thing was happening. And I kind of didn't talk about it a lot just because uh, I wanted to kind of see where things were going to kind of were going to fall out with respect to attribution. But I, I thought it was interesting in that, you know, just in my years of working in other other organizations on those types of problems that, you know, nothing happens in that part of the, in that region that, that it does not first have some sort of overt a- approval by the controlling entity in that region, right? So when people, I found it interesting and kind of fascinating that when people were placing a lot of emphasis on DPRK and, and WannaCry, that they were really not considering the fact that that likely wouldn't happen without some degree of approval uh, and, and authority from another entity. <laughs> so any thoughts on that? Or <laughs> I, I think attribution's really, really hard. You know, it's a very, I think at the end of the day, you have to think about the resources of these people when they're doing something offensive. If they want to be deceptive about what they're doing, then then they can be very deceptive and they can make another country or even another organization, you know, look like the ones who are, are, are originating it. So it's it's tough. I tend not to believe when when people say they can do attribution. I, I can say, hey, there's similarities in in these hacking patterns. That's great. But if I've got the resources of, of a nation state, I know where those botnets are and I know how to take over them and I know how to look like that particular type of malware. You know, so it, when it comes to the nation state stuff, I just don't, I don't think you can really, really, they're operating on a different plane of, of existence than most people in cyber at that point. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. I thought, I thought that particular one was interesting just because of the, the discussion that occurred with regards to eternal, with eternal blue and double pulsar. But, you know, again, speculation notwithstanding, you're, you bring up an excellent point, and that's the game is played at an entirely different level when you're dealing with organizations that, and entities that have almost limitless resources. And it's interesting today because, so like in World War II, right, we knew that the Germans were going to bomb 
a certain city in London. So the question is, do we evacuate or not evacuate? And do you have that, that tell? The problem with cyber is a lot of our assets are used for espionage and, you know, collection and, and stuff. But, you know, that same asset might be used to destroy a target. But so you're making that same kind of decision, you know, every, every day, right? Do you, do you wipe the hard drive or you, do, do you, do you inject some malicious code or do you go on, you know, listening to those things? And there's, that's predominantly what goes on, you know, with us. And I'm assuming with all the other uh, organizations out there. So, you know, I, I would tell people that, look, if you want to help defend the country, the more you can be compliant, the more you can make it harder for somebody to attack your network, the more you're going to cause somebody like a foreign country to expend resources to monitor your network. That's the way you should look about it. You know, I, I, I'd love to coin some sort of catchy phrase like, you know, compliance stops intelligence, you know, cyber intelligence, but it, it, it's too catchy, you know. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, though. You know, if you if you make it harder for the adversary to actually do what they, you know, what they're trying to achieve via intent, you know, eventually you might level the playing field or just outlast them, which is a good point. At this point, we'd probably like to start uh, with closing remarks. Again, Ron, thank you for your time. You've been really gracious over an hour of your time. Ron Gula, you know, here with us uh, from Gula Tech Adventures. I'm really pleased and uh, can't say just how appreciative we are to have had you on the show. Ron, would you like to say anything before we close? Hey, if anybody wants to learn about what we're doing, our website's at www.gula, that's G-U-L-A dot tech, T-E-C-H. We've got a blog. We've got a whole bunch of different companies. None of them are competitors to Digital Guardian. <laughs> a lot of them work with what you guys do. Happy for the opportunity. And I thought the questions were great. It was really good to spend some time talking about these type of events. 